Welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin. Thank you for joining me on this, the 10th episode of the podcast. And with the release of this episode, we are celebrating the milestone of 1,000 downloads. Thank you to everyone who tunes in regularly who made this possible. If you're new to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast and you like what you hear today, give the show a review on iTunes and be sure to subscribe so that you can be notified when new episodes become available. If you'd like to get more involved in supporting the podcast and receive some extras, visit the show's Patreon page at patreon.com slash cmtuhistory. And as always, if you would like to get in touch with me, I'd love to hear from you on social media. I'm at facebook.com slash cmtuhistory, on Twitter at cmtuhistory, and on Instagram at cmtuhistory. Now on to this week's episode. My guest today is Paul Watson. Paul's career in investigative reporting and photojournalism has spanned 30 years and has taken him across the globe. As a war correspondent, Paul has written for the Toronto Star as well as the Los Angeles Times, where he served as South Asian Bureau Chief. He has won numerous awards for his work, including the Freedom of the Press Award from the National Press Club for his reporting during the Kosovo War, the Daniel Pearl Award from the South Asian Journalists Association for his coverage in Afghanistan, and most notably the Pulitzer Prize in News Photography for his work during the Somali Civil War and the 1993 UN peacekeeping mission in Mogadishu. There is even a permanent display on Paul's work at the Museum, a museum dedicated to the history of journalism and the press in Washington, D.C. Paul joins me today from Western Canada via Skype to talk about his book, Ice Ghosts, The Epic Hunt for the Lost Franklin Expedition. Paul was present on board the ship that discovered the wreckage of HMS Erebus in 2014, over 150 years after the expedition was beset by Arctic ice and lost to history. Today we cover what motivated Sir John Franklin and his crew, how the quest to find the lost expedition became an international fascination, and how Inuit oral history was pivotal in solving this century-old mystery. Now on to the show. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast Bringing you strange but true things from the past It's not the average history that you learned in school We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools And stories that are just too crazy to believe The stranger than fiction and super unique Hi Paul, welcome on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's begin by um, you telling us a little bit about yourself and your past work and how you got interested in the Franklin Expedition. For most of my career, I was a journalist working in newspapers. Uh, the, you know, the last paper I worked for was the Toronto Star in Canada, but I worked for the Los Angeles Times before that. And for most of the, that work, I was a war correspondent. So I was in places like Afghanistan and the and the Balkans, uh, all the way back uh, to the early 90s, when your listeners will remember the uh, failed U.S.-led mission in Somalia. I saw you. You're a Pulitzer Prize recipient, correct? That's right. Um, you know, as uh, as as a strange life would have it. Very good, very good. And, and that was for your earlier book, um, Where War Lives. Um, it, it's it's for a photograph, and the you know that this is kind of a touchy thing. Uh, I, I'm not proud of it, but it was something I had to do. Um, uh, Americans will remember 1993 when troops were in Somalia to stop a famine, and had had done a great job of it, uh, and then unfortunately things went south, and you know so-called mission creep set in, and and a humanitarian mission became a more political operation, and uh, you know the, the, the these moments were enshrined in the movie Black Hawk Down, uh, and I took a photograph of a dead American soldier being dragged by an angry Somali mob. Um, that's uh, you know the again I'm not proud of it, but people can read about uh, why I had to do it, and and that's actually in in the book you mentioned, um, Where War Lives. So it is kind of a leap from 
from being a war reporter to writing a book about the Franklin expedition. Uh, but that happened by an interesting turn of events, which was I had a visa and was all packed and ready to go uh, to do some more war reporting in Afghanistan. But a space opened up on an icebreaker run by the Canadian Coast Guard, which was part of the search for the lost Franklin expedition from the middle of the 19th century. And my newspaper said, do you want to take it? And I said, sure, thinking that really nothing was going to happen. I'd probably read some books and have a nice Arctic voyage. Uh, but something did happen. So you were there when they discovered the ships. That's right. That's the, the late summer of 2014. And again, an, an intriguing turn of events had to take place for that to happen. The, they had been searching since 2008. The then prime minister was a conservative party prime minister named Stephen Harper, who just purely by accident I knew from high school. Uh, he had an interest personally in the Arctic and uh, also for political reasons related to Russian moves in the high Arctic, which, which he and the Canadian government considered a threat to Canadian claims over territory way up near the North Pole. Uh, Prime Minister Harper decided that the response to this would be a renewed ship, uh, renewed search, uh, sorry, for the two lost ships of the Franklin Expedition. So they started that in 2008. They weren't finding anything and were, were spinning their wheels essentially until the late summer of 2014. And then the weather went bad on them. There had been a series of very warm summers which opened up a huge search area, and they were targeting one spot which was, was quite far north, but suddenly the ice returned. And this is reminiscent of the period that Franklin experienced himself, that there were periods of warm summers uh, and then suddenly unusually cold weather. And this turn of events meant that they had to switch their search further south. And when they did that, that's when purely, you know, not purely, but, you know, by, by good fortune, came across the wreck of HMS Erebus, which was Sir John's flagship. So this wasn't their preferred uh, search area. That's right. Um, but but it, was, it was a known area, uh, known because Inuit oral history, the, you know, the native people of the north, had since the beginning, way back in the 1850s, said that there was a, a ship underwater in that area. Uh, you have to read the book Ice Ghosts to really understand how it took so long for people to listen to the Inuit. And that's really one of the central themes of the book, to, to pay respect and to listen to the local people and, and stop treating them as ignorant savages, which they were called in the 19th century, and understand that even though they didn't have a written history, their oral history was very accurate. And so that ship was found in, in the very area that Inuit had said there was a ship all along. That's one thing that I really enjoyed about reading your book, Ice Ghosts, was, was that theme of how um, we treat, and, and, and we being you know, you know, Western European descent, uh, in my case, Americans and you know, Canadians, um, treat you know, Native Americans and First Peoples and Take, uh, approach their way of doing history and their their heritage because um, that there's a lesson in your book I, I really think there is well uh, you're kind for saying that because that's really you know they when I explained my history you could understand that I'm not naturally drawn to to stories about European exploration because we you know we're taught in high school that they discovered this and discovered that well, they didn't discover it at all. The Inuit lived there. That they lived there for centuries before any white people arrived. So it was, it was an inhabited place. Um, the 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 thing that I caught on to was the fact 
that the, the Inuit had this rich history and that they had told people way back when and, and very few experienced uh, uh, British explorers, American explorers listened to them, but they were overruled by the higher ups, the, the people in government and elsewhere who said, we know better than you do. But the people who, the white people who had spent the most time up there knew that the Inuit understood what was going on. And this is more than just a lesson of history to me, because as we face a rapidly warming climate, the Arctic is warming faster than anywhere else on Earth. And it's more important than ever to listen to the Inuit now, in my opinion, because they know things and can tell us things that will alert us to what sorts of changes are taking place that are going to affect the whole planet. I'm sure they see the change firsthand. That, that's exactly it, because to be crude about it, the, the, you know, the, the Arctic is the air conditioner of the planet, so that when, you know, when things warm up in oceans further south and on the land, we we can hope that the Arctic would mitigate that with cold air flowing south. But instead, what's happening now is the jet stream, the polar vortex, that, that circulation of air around the top of the planet is being interrupted. So you get these great dips, oscillations, where cold air is coming way far south into New York, Washington, those areas, and they're having extremely cold weather. And then the dips of southern air pull up into places like where I live on the west coast so we get unusually warm wet weathers and and that sort of interruption of of what has been true for centuries thousands of years is the sort of thing that the Inuit can tell us about because they are seeing the changes before us and they can warn us of what's coming I think there's a I think there's a lot of wisdom there. Um, okay, so let's um, dive into the history a, a little bit that, that you write about. Um, what you talk about the age of discovery? Uh, what was that, and how did that period in history motivate Sir John Franklin and his crew to head up and explore the Arctic? Now that this is interesting from the point of view of a former war reporter. Because the, the period we're talking about starts around 1818, when the, the British Royal Navy, which, which you know, it's, it's, it's like the, uh, you know, the U.S. Navy today, was by far the dominant force around the planet on the oceans. They ran into a, a problem that we would completely understand today, and that is peace. Uh, you know, when, when you have such a, a powerful war machine and they don't have a war to fight anymore, then they start cutting costs. And you're talking about the Napoleonic Wars. That's right, which had ended in, in 1815. And so what did the, the Royal Navy immediately start doing? They started laying off officers, uh, cutting their salaries, firing large numbers of sailors, and mothballing uh, warships. So the bureaucracy quickly moved to try to find a new purpose, a peacetime purpose for the Royal Navy. And a civil servant, a man named Sir John Barrow, um, worked very hard in magazine articles and, and in books, making the case for a return to exploration both in the North Pole and the South Pole. And, you know, 1818 is when this finally begins. and. The two ships that are chosen are both warships, HMS Erebus. Erebus is, the, is a you know, mythical world, word for the gateway to hell. Uh, and HMS Terror, we understand what terror is. Two great dames for really uh, powerful warships. And when Americans sing the Star Spangled Banner, what, when they sing the, the line bombs bursting in air, they're singing a, a lyric written by Francis Scott Key, who was at Fort McHenry uh, near Baltimore, when British warships in 1812 were bombarding Fort McHenry. And one of those warships was HMS Terror. 
and it was firing mortar bombs from the decks, which bursted in air. And so when, whenever the flag is raised and children or sports fans or whoever sing about that, they're referring to HMS Terror, which now sits at the bottom of the Arctic Ocean in Canada. So that's interesting. Yeah, everyone here in the United States, I, whether they realize it or not, has a connection to this story. That's right, and I'll, I'll, you know, in a, in a second, uh, I'll, uh, as we as we chat, I'll give you an even better one. Okay. So, what were some of the motivations of, of this period? What, what, why go off and explore? When when Sir John Barrow was making his argument, the it was much like uh, you know p- people will remember in the '60s when John Kennedy said we're going to go to the moon, and the cynics or the doubters said well, it's going to cost a lot of money and people are going to die in the process. And when we get to the moon, what are we going to do there? People made the same arguments against polar exploration. Uh, It's expensive, it's dangerous, and even if we find the mythical Northwest Passage, that is the sea route linking the Arctic Ocean to the Pacific, if we find such a thing, what are we going to do with it? Because it's mostly ice. So Sir John Barrow's answer to that was similar to John Kennedy's answer. If we don't do it, somebody else will. And in this case, in both cases, it was the Russians. So the the, sort of the clincher to the argument was Britain rules the seas. We need to find the Northwest Passage before the Russians do. And even though the United States was much weaker on the seas at the time, as this story unfolds, when the search begins, the American Navy takes an interest and says, you know, we we should probably join into the hunt for the lost Franklin expedition because we might find the Northwest Passage in the process. That kind of, um, I guess, geopolitical rival, rivalry is a really good motivator to get things done. <laughs> that, that's right. Then, now, uh, and probably for time immemorial. Yeah, I've, I've heard some... Um, scientists comment that uh, you know people talk about sending a manned mission to Mars and um, you know they kind of quip well if we end up in any kind of space race with somebody we'll get to Mars pretty quick <laughs> that's right uh, and and let's you know let, let's hope it's peaceful right so um, how does um, uh, Sir John Franklin uh, factor into this what can you tell us about him now he he was a, a very accomplished polar explorer he, but by the time 1845 rolls around, now just a reminder, the, the polar exploration, this phase of it, begins in 1818. By the time Sir John uh, gets involved with HMS Terror and Erebus, he's already done three missions. Uh, he was part of one by sea, and then he led two on land. And he was quite successful against terrible odds in mapping uh, what is now the the northwest uh, coast um, of Canada along the Arctic, uh, and he had to go there by canoe and by land, and almost killed himself uh, in one of those missions uh, through starvation, uh, and and you know almost killed the whole expedition. And famously, when he finally got back to England, became known as the man who ate his boots, because he literally ate the, the leather of his, of his boots, uh, along with lichen and, and what else they could scrape up. Uh, there were rumors also, even of cannibalism, that they actually ate one of the expedition members to survive, to get out of that. Now, he, he was getting older, um, and he was offered a governorship uh, to to run one of the British colonies. And I think people would understand that he was a man who was extraordinarily adept at surviving against nature, but wasn't so good in the political world where, you know, you can, you can take your chances against the weather or animals or, or whatever nature will throw at you. But when it's the, the backstabbing of dirty politics, uh, then that sort of person uh, can be lost in the wilderness. And this is what happened to Sir John. He was the governor of what was called Van Diemen's Land, which is now Tasmania, next to Australia. 
and he got stabbed in the back by petty bureaucrats and you know they did what we would understand today they leaked dirt on him to newspapers in london and in those days if something appears in a newspaper in london you won't hear about it for weeks so he couldn't defend himself he was called home in disgrace and his wife another extraordinary character in the book well you know probably my favorite character in the book his wife uh, uh, lady jane franklin persuaded him that he needed to rehabilitate his reputation and that the best way to do that was to go back to the Arctic where he had made his name in the first place. So when this 1845 expedition was being prepared, he was almost 59 at that point, uh, probably too old to take on such a risk, but he, he literally begged for the job. And the people higher up the shortlist than him all refused it so the Admiralty reluctantly said, okay, Sir John, this one's yours. Do you think he was motivated a, a little bit of, of not wanting to be, um, you know, because he said he's getting a little bit older, you know, not wanting to be a has-been at that point? I, I, I think that's exactly it. And, and again, that, you know, the, I, 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 can, I can feel his pain of having been, uh, you know, so great that any any salon you enter in London, you are welcomed uh, by, you know, as a, as, as a hero. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the sort of people who cling on to heroes, this, he, he would have been in his day like an astronaut would be today. And then to go from those great heights to someone who's disgraced and called home uh, and, and f essentially fired from your position would have been a hard thing to take. And I, I can understand the temptation uh, of thinking, well, gee, if I can just get back to the Arctic, and better still, it seemed that they were, he knew the western exit of the Northwest Passage because he had mapped it himself. The eastern entrance was well known because whalers had been up there for generations. He was looking for a middle section that they expected was roughly 300 miles. So you can imagine in his mind, it was, we might actually come home as, as the people who found the Northwest Passage. It would have been an extraordinary comeback story. So he's headed up to the Arctic. Um, you've been there. What, what is the geography of this, this part of the world and, and what are the conditions like here? And also how prepared was Erebus and Terror to handle that? The, the ships themselves were, were well prepared. They're, because they're bomb ships, they're very heavy timbers, they had iron cladding uh, to, to deal with the ice, uh, they were very well supplied. They had at least three years worth of, of food, some of it canned, which becomes a problem, uh, which we can talk about. Uh, they, had, they had stores of, of wine for the officers, they had a, a complete library of books in both ships. They had musical instruments. They even had plays uh, so that, you know, assuming as they, as they had to, because this had happened more than once, assuming that the ships would get trapped in ice for at least one winter, they would have entertainment. So the men would put on costumes and they would prepare plays and they would have a jolly good time getting themselves through the winter before carrying on. So in that way, they were well prepared. Uh, not so well prepared if they had to walk. Now this is, you know, again, you'd think, um, how, how could you not assume that you might have to walk out? I think it's important to remember the hubris of, of the British Royal Navy. The, this is an institution that thinks it can, it can dominate anyone on the planet, and then it can dominate the planet itself. And that's a very dangerous notion in a place like the Arctic. The Inuit will tell you, if you do not respect it, it will bite you hard. Uh, and, and that, I think, is what happened to, the, to Erebus and Terror. They were, they were prepared for the sea and life on a, on a ship that was trapped by ice 
But when they abandoned those ships stuck in the ice, they didn't have the proper clothing, the proper boots, the supplies to keep them alive as they tried to walk out. And all 129 men died. And so inside their ships, they're, you know, for the most part, sheltered from the environment. Well, once they go outside, what, what are they facing? I've, I've been up there you know, several times in winter, and it, it's a very unique experience to be in a gale, which is effectively a hurricane, uh, where the snow is blowing at you horizontal to the ground. And the howling is just, it's, it's very hard to, to describe until, until it's shaking you and you can't get it out of your ears. It's a terrifying sound. And I've, you know, I've, I've been in, in it with a warm building that I can jump back into. So you sort of step out into it, feel it for a few minutes as, as your skin's becoming, uh, you know, c- coming to the verge of frostbite. And it really, in, in, in the dead of winter, in a gale, in minus 50 degrees, frostbite is only minutes away for exposed skin. And, and death isn't far after that if, if you don't have shelter or some way to warm yourself. So it, it can be a terrifying experience. I can imagine it even worse for these poor men because this period, uh, and this is another reason why they got into trouble, is right at the end of what they called the Little Ice Age. So the, the Arctic we know is cold in winter, but it was even colder in that period. And the Inuit uh, oral history speaks of a period of two or three years right around the time that they got stuck that was so bad, the Inuit were starving to death. So it's this convergence of events that, that made this just a living nightmare for these men as they tried to, tried to find their way out, hoping to get to the mainland and then to to get to the closest Hudson's Bay trading post, a fur trading post, and then get home. Yeah, the, um, the other thing you write about in the book that to me was just um, kind of terrifying is the, the terrain can change. You know, you might be stuck on essentially an iceberg, but that could be moving and your position could be moving and you're not, you don't realize it. And you write about these, these um, kind of mountain ridges of ice that pop up periodically. That that's right, and the you know the I, I assumed as I think most people outside of the Arctic would that when you look at ice, it's a stable kind of platform that goes forever, but of course it isn't because water is flowing underneath it, and and the wind is blowing and other pressures are working on the ice, so the ice is is pressing in on itself. And pressing against the land that it might abut against, in uh, you know, in islands and such, and so it's constantly moving and creaking and cracking. And w- w- when those cracks occur, it's like a shotgun went off next to your head. Loud cracks, and it, and the ice cleaves up into into pressure ridges, so that when you're you're trying to walk from a ship that is is you know 20 30 miles off of the closest land you're not simply walking across flat ice you have to walk over little hills or 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 pressure ridges and at this at the same time you're pulling these men were uh, lifeboats uh, you know f- fairly large wooden boats with ropes in which they packed uh, all sorts of supplies and incredibly all sorts of other things that were quite odd such as writing desks uh, brass curtain rods other things that you wouldn't think men would bring when they're trying to walk their way to safety now that that's just one thing that made historians think that they went crazy perhaps because they ingested too much lead in their water or be, you know, or for other reasons that more recent science has debunked that um, the the feeling now among scientists is, is that they if they were crazy they weren't crazy from lead poisoning um, I would suggest to you that they weren't crazy at all 
because the location of the ships where we now know they are strongly suggests that they tried to sail their way out that they at some point went back to their ships with a smaller crew and then tried to to navigate their way home and got stuck again so they would have had had to have a, a decent amount of sense and you know cognizant of how to sail a ship in order to do that that's right, and I'll, you know the the uh, again I urge your audience to to read the book, and you'll see why I think that uh, is it's not a proven theory. The evidence will come, uh, archaeologists hope, if they can find written records. Now the, these are very disciplined men; they would have kept log books, and they probably the archaeologists think uh, would have preserved those log books. And one, one place that they are looking at, and that this you can imagine this is meticulous work that's going to take years uh, trying to carefully enter these uh, submerged ships and catalog them and then try to, to see what might be in hidden spaces. And one space they're looking at is a, is a trunk in the officer's mess, which is the officer's eating area. It's a tiny little space where where several officers would have sat shoulder to shoulder to eat dinner and other meals, and one or two of them would have sat on this chest. And that chest is completely intact, and the the archaeologists think that if they can get that, get it up and open it, they might find logbooks in there. In which case, you know, you, you can imagine what stories may be told. So, uh, the you know, the mission does go awry, and, and no one hears word from the Franklin Expedition for um, an alarmingly long period of time. And one thing that I found really interesting in reading the, uh, your book is that, uh, you know, this becomes a worldwide phenomenon. People are wondering what happened to them, where are they? Um, but the new, very popular spiritualist movement seemed to latch on to the Franklin Expedition. Um, what were occultists... Um, doing with the Franklin Expedition? The, you know, the, it was popular in the day for people uh, who had some money and, and a lot of luxury to consult, uh, you know, either psychics or fortune tellers, or, you know, people who dabbled in the paranormal. And you know, we, we can again think back to this period where there was this explosion of science the, the word science was even just new in those days. The b before that, it was called natural uh, uh, philosophy. There were natural philosophers. The because there was this explosion of science, there was the feeling that any phenomenon could and should be examined, taken seriously. So even the sense that there could be ghosts or that people could communicate over distances with thought and all the other elements of paranormal were treated by you know fairly large groups of people serious people uh, as as worthy worthy possibilities enter that picture lady jane franklin who is this incredibly strong woman who uh, you know she, she she would be a powerful figure today let alone in the middle of the 19th century when the admiralty and society was telling her, you know, be a good widow and just go home and, and, and mourn quietly, uh, your husband's probably dead, uh, just deal with it. She refused to do that. Even before uh, anyone officially went looking for the lost expedition, she had a feeling in her heart that they were in trouble. So she went to psychics and to others, and they they sort of fed that feeling. Now the people who read the book will find some of it hilariously silly, some of the things she was told, but there is one ghost story in Ice Ghosts, which no one to this day, and you know, there's an open invitation to anyone who wants to read it and pick it apart. I have still not found anyone who can explain, and I won't blow it for, for readers who haven't seen it yet, uh, no one has explained how a child uh, who died in Ireland 
the, the, the daughter of a sea captain came back as a ghost and explained to a sibling who, who drew a map of an undiscovered area and said the lost Franklin expedition is there. And, and this child listening to a ghost uh, drew a map which is now fairly accurate but it was a map of an area no one had seen except for the lost Franklin expedition. So it, it, it's intriguing. Yeah, I, I found that uh, rather astonishing myself when I, when I read it because, um, you know, I, I, I think most of these spiritualists were, you know, they were um, con artists for the most part. Um, That's right. You know, and swindlers. But, you know, you do mention the one case where the, the, the kids seemed to be fairly fairly close, which I, I thought was interesting. You know, the, the, I, I love science, but I'm not a scientist, and so I'm way over my head on this, but the, the more I hear about quantum mechanics and parallel universes and the multiverse and these sorts of things, uh, which is all cutting-edge science, the, the more I wonder if there are possibilities that we just don't appreciate. We call them ghosts or spirits or whatever. But, but maybe there is some, some way uh, that, that messages can cross space and time. Who knows? Uh, but, but there was certainly an instance, and Lady Franklin took it seriously and worked very hard to get her own expedition at her own expense to go to that place on the basis of a ghost story to look for her husband. All right, so she sends one mission to hunt for her husband. Um, there were a few missions to try to find the Franklin Expedition, both um, you know, when they think there's a chance they might still be alive, and also after they know for you know the crew has to be dead at this point. They're just trying to find the, the wreckage. Can, can you describe some of these early missions for us? Now, the, the, they got trapped in the ice in 1846, and then they, in September of 1846, and then they abandoned the ships in 1848. And we know this because they left a note ca called the Victory Point Record, and people can see photographs of this uh, on the internet, which is, you know, another chilling, to, to use that Arctic term, um, thing about this story. When you read the Victory Point record, you can literally see the shaking hand of of a of a man who's who's starving and freezing to death, telling whoever finds it, we're abandoning ship, we're gonna try to walk out. Now that was in eighteen forty six, September twelfth. In the same year Lady Franklin, as I said, already had a sense that they were in trouble. So she took it upon herself to ask a whaler to, to go, you know, who was in that area of hunting whales anyway, to, not in the precise area where they were lost, but to the east of it, the, where four generations, American, British, and other whalers had gone hunting. And he made a, a feeble attempt to try to enter what is called Lancaster Sound, the eastern entrance to the Northwest Passage, to take a look. And, and that, you know, obviously came to naught. So technically the search starts as early as 1846, but the Admiralty, the, the people in charge of the Royal Navy, are telling Lady Franklin and others, you know, that it's far too early to search. They have three years worth of food at least. They could probably go double that on rations, uh, you know, relax. Uh, you'll probably hear from them soon on the other side in Russia. The the Royal Navy uh, finally begins searching, and and they end up, um, you know, be, before all of, uh, all of this is 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 over, in eighteen forty nine. It's uh, eighteen fifty nine rather. Uh, some thirty six missions have been sent either to search, or to resupply search missions. So that's from 1847 to 1859, 36 missions. You can imagine the expense of that. Lives were lost, ships were lost. And, and here's where we get back to some great American history. One of the ships that was trapped 
in those search missions was HMS Resolute, which was beset by ice uh, in 1850, if I remember right. Yes, 1850, trapped in ice, and then it was finally abandoned in 1854. And after all of the men uh, left the ship, the ice broke up. And this is intriguing as a possibility for HMS Terror and Erebus because the ice broke up and an abandoned ship drifted empty all the way across the Arctic to the east and then down the coast where American whalers found her, a ghost ship adrift. And they brought her down uh, to the east coast of the United States, fixed her up, and as a gift to the British crown, uh, then Queen Victoria, uh, gave the repaired HMS Resolute in London. And then she turned around and broke it up and used some of the timbers to make a desk. Well, that desk is the Resolute desk that President Trump sits at today in the Oval Office. Yeah, and, and almost every president since she gave it to uh, President Rutherford B. Hayes, right? That's right. That, that's right. So when you know, the, I think people ordinarily think resolute means the resolute nature of the president. Uh, in fact, it's resolute from HMS Resolute, a ship that got stuck looking for the Franklin Expedition. Yeah, I, I really like that story because that's, yet again, another way that how this tale connects to American history um, in, in a way that a lot of people aren't aware of. And, you know, the, the again, I, I don't want to sound mystical, but... I, I really do believe, and sailors certainly believe this, that ships are kind of like living living beings. They make sounds and they they almost they they literally do expand and contract almost like a like a living being. And when you've got part of of what was something that has a kind of spirit that had gone through so much, had been lost, abandoned, and then managed to find her own way out as a ghost ship in that sense to be restored and then broken up for that epic story to end up as a desk in the in in the the office of the most powerful leader in the world to me is just extraordinary i'd like to take a short break from my conversation with paul watson to tell you about another podcast you might like This episode has been about the Canadian High Arctic, and today's guest is in fact a Canadian journalist. I have a bit of a soft spot for Canada and its history ever since I took a Canadian Studies course in grad school. I've been up there on a few occasions. I've visited Niagara Falls, New Brunswick, and even Halifax, Nova Scotia. It's a great place to visit if you ever get the chance. Well, I've become a fan of a podcast you might like called Cool Canadian History. The host, David Boris, is a military historian, and many of the show's episodes have a military theme. They cover some great World War I stories, by the way. But most recently, I've enjoyed David's two-part series, Canadians on the Bridge, about actors William Shatner and James Doohan and their roles as Captain Kirk and Scotty in the original Star Trek. That series has been a lot of fun to listen to. If you're interested in learning more about Canada, check out Cool Canadian History. Now back to my conversation with Paul powerful leader in the world, to me, is just extraordinary. Absolutely. So it might be tempting to just um, write off the Franklin Expedition as um, prideful. They traveled too far. They went to a place that humans just can't live, and um, you know they encountered too harsh of an environment. But that's not true at all. You've mentioned there's people who live there. They live their lives there. How, right. how did the Inuit do it? Well, you know, the, 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 they migrated over many centuries. So we know of the, of the history, which is, I think is somewhat being rewritten now. Um, but the sort of the basic story is that people from Asia, uh, you know, when uh, migrated across a land bridge at the end of the last ice age and over those centuries worked their way south into the North and South America. And the Inuit are part of that group uh, which migrated across the Arctic. So over generations, people are learning to live in a changing environment. And the Inuit became very good at living 
in, in some of the worst conditions on the planet. Uh, they have to live through frequent starvation, they have to live through extraordinary cold, they cannot um, do any sort of agriculture because, because the conditions just aren't right, the, the soil isn't right, the growing season is too short. So they are extraordinarily tough survivors. And, you know, one of the key things for their survival is making clothing out of animal fur. And, you know, the, the, the whalers again knew this. They did it themselves. They, they often bought clothing from the Inuit, either in Greenland or, 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 or further west. And the British Royal Navy had the opportunity to do the same. But historians have suggested to me that that would have been difficult for a couple of reasons. Uh, that they would have been had to be custom made because the size of a British Royal Navy sailor from England is significantly different at that time than an Inuit man would be. So they, you know, they, 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 there are just several obvious problems with completely outfitting uh, a, the two crews of Royal Navy bomb ships. So, so there is evidence of. Inuit clothing being used by some members, uh, perhaps uh, as the men tried to walk out, they traded things to get to get some local clothing, that sort of thing. But they were not properly equipped in terms, uh, you know, th th there's an, an expedition going across the Antarctic as we speak, two of them, I think. Um, uh, you know, obviously they have the best warm equipment uh, that, that they can get. The Royal Navy, on the other hand, were wearing thin leather boots that you would, you know, you, you'd, your feet would be cold in New York on a cold winter day in, in those kinds of boots, let alone when they're, when they're wet in your, you know, in your dank um, uh, sleeping bag at night and then frozen as you try to walk. Uh, the, these men had frostbite they were starving. Their food was probably toxic because the, the canned food went bad. That they, they were, were really in bad shape because their supplies weren't good enough. Was there an element of, of looking at how the Inuit approached the Arctic? Because, you know, they view the Inuit as savages, as primitive, as backwards. Is there a little bit of... Um... I guess Western elitism in, in how they saw Inuit practices and they looked down their nose at them. That I mean that, that that's right. I you know I, I studied some history in university and I always got in trouble because my professors told me you can't judge the period from the the morals the standards of our age. Um, but you know I, I I think it's fair to say that that there was an element of racism to this that that not only did the, you know the royal navy others look at what the the inuit were telling them about you know where the likely place would be to find at least one of these ships and, and dismiss it because it came from people who who were in their eyes savages they went further and they said they're liars that you can't trust these people. They're constantly cheating and lying, and you know the. I, I think that's that's going a bit far. Uh, you know, again, I return to whalers, who were the, who were the, the Europeans with the most experience up there. They um, they knew you like any human being. You can trust some people. You can't trust others, and and some of the information was sound. The cool thing about the, the story in the book is that the, the, the big breakthrough, or at least the most progress in, in a century, occurs when an Inuit oral historian starts turning his eyes on the Franklin Expedition. How, how did it take that Inuit historian uh, to kind of crack this case? This is an extraordinary man named Louis Kamukak, uh, who was literally a, a, a living bridge between the old traditional ways of the Inuit living on the land, migrating, following, um, you know, the the animals that they hunted, mainly caribou, seals, and other things, and then 
living in igloos in the winter. Um, the, he, he, his childhood was like that, and then he became a, a settled person in a hamlet, a you know, small town called Johaven on King William Island. And the, the Franklin expedition tried to walk out along the shores of King William Island. So there are artifacts, you know, to this day that are lying on the, on the ground there. There are human remains and there are graves. When Louis was a boy living in a, in a caribou hide tent on the land with his family as they were hunting, he was taking care of his grandmother who was sick and dying while the rest of the family, most of them were out hunting far from, from their camp. So he was a boy alone taking care of a sick old woman and at night she would tell him stories. And one of the stories she told him was uh, as a girl with her father up at the northwest part of King William Island where the Franklin expedition first came ashore way back in, in 1848. Um, she and her father found uh, round uh, metal pellets. At first they thought they were, were the, the droppings of a hair. Uh, obviously, they, they were probably shotgun, uh, you know, the uh, pellets from, from a shotgun. Uh, and also, what seemed, to be, what seemed to Louis, as he investigated this, probably a butter knife, a knife that an officer would have used to butter his bread at dinner. And that story stuck in his head. And through different circumstances, as he grew up, he he became determined to try to figure out what that was all about. He learned about the Franklin Expedition in school. He began to read European histories of it, original journals of searchers and such. And then through his own work, began to map uh, uh, Inuit oral history, visiting elders in different places and listening to their stories. And he began to make connections between those Inuit stories and the, the European, the British names that had been given to different places. And, and it was sort of triangulating. He, he realized that the very likely place of one of those ships, and again, I urge people to read the book, because when you reach the point where he figures out where one of the ships is, it's largely because of a name of a tiny little island that has no name in English, but it has a name in Anuktitut, which he learned from the elders. And that name, when you read it, will make you uh, want to throw the book at the wall, I think. That, that blew my mind when I read that. The, this <laughs> ship has been hidden for 150 years, and if you would have just uh, you know, asked the Inuit elders, Right, <laughs> sort of, sort of a big red arrow pointing. Look here, uh, when when you hear what the name of the island is, the you know, the, and, and I have to pay tribute to to, to Louis because um, you know, unfortunately, he passed away this summer, and he he like uh, like any in, uh, in a person I have met on King William Island believed very strongly that spirits walk the land. And his mission was not to find the ships. He, he told me, he said, frankly, none of us really care about those ships. They're underwater, uh, and, and you know we, we don't go sticking our heads underwater. What he wanted to find was what he believes is the tomb of Sir John Franklin. Sir John Franklin died in 1847 before the ships were abandoned. We don't know how because the note that was left doesn't say. But Louis believed that, you know, the, again, you have to read the book to understand it's pretty compelling evidence. He believed that Sir John was buried up there, and he had a pretty good idea of where it was. And each time he went looking, he fell very ill. He had to have two heart surgeries. And when he went looking again this summer, he fell ill again uh, and then died of cancer. And, you know, you can, you can believe what you want to believe, uh, that this came up even even in the news this week. You can Google it. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which is Canada's national 
public broadcaster has a wonderful story about how Inuit were communicating to the government that after the discovery of the two wrecks up there, they've had a series of deaths, which they blame, some of them, on the disturbance of these wrecks. And even a skeptic uh, among them in that story said, you know, that that may or may not be, uh, but he had no doubt that there are spirits walking the land of King William Island. Um, and, you know, the uh, I've been up there, and I'll tell you, I have felt strange things. It could simply be the the nature of the place, um, but you really get a sense of of something strange around you. And and the Inuit believe some of them uh, that those uh, are are spirits. Some of them the, the the spirits of the dead Franklin expedition. Yeah, and I I think you do a good job of bringing that to life. Some of their uh, religious and cultural beliefs and. Um, you know, you treat it very respectfully, I think, and, uh, you know, a, a lot of, of the, their history and, and instances surrounding that island, they have good reason, I think, to be superstitious. You know, the it, it, you sort of have to get out to those places. I think I read recently, I think the, the, the Celts, the Irish, call them thin places. I sometimes get this wrong and call it thin spaces. But, but thin places where, where the, the, the known and the unknown, the seen and the unseen, come so close together that you can feel it. And when you get to those places, um, and I think the Arctic is one of them, you really do feel something different. It, it's an energy of something. I, I, you know, I don't want to sound strange, but the, uh, you know, the, we have so much faith in science we should remind ourselves that science hasn't answered every question out there. There may be phenomena that have very simple scientific explanations, but they haven't come yet. They may be a century, five centuries away, uh, and, and they may explain what the Inuit are talking about. Um, let, let me ask you, and, and, and you may not know the, the answer to this, um, um, after um, you know, his, his unfortunate passing, um, uh, Louis Kamukuk, um, is anybody going to take up the mantle of searching for Franklin's grave? Uh, the, there, he had a couple of close relatives who, who believed the same thing. Uh, I, I know, I, I, I don't know this for a fact because I haven't spoken to them recently, but I would assume that, that they will take up that mantle. And I, and I knew through Louis that there were others in the community who shared his belief that Franklin is buried up there. So I, I, would, I would be pretty sure that, that people are going to pick this up. The, the, the government-led uh, archaeological effort is focused underwater on those ships because that's an enormous job. It's going to take a very long time to complete that work. Um, others, I think, are more focused on the land. I'm glad to hear that because I think, um, you know, I think that's a worthy thing to to keep pursuing, both looking at the ships and and finding out what we can about, you know, the final resting place of the of the members of the expedition. And you know, the, the 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 clock is ticking because of climate change. If the you know the if he is up there, he's well preserved because bodies have been found in other graves that were marked, and people again can see these photographs on the internet. Yeah, they, the, the the Arctic essentially mummified them, right? That that's exactly right. The clothes are preserved. The teeth are there. They they look like they could get up and walk away almost. So if Sir John is up there. They need to find him before the permafrost melts, and animals, you know, not to be too graphic, animals take him apart or, or, or it simply decays. Uh, the, you know, there's some urgency to this. Um, right, the, the, the last question I have for you is, is just the, the legacy of the shipwreck. Um, you, you write in the book very early on that uh, even though a lot of people might think the Titanic is the world's most famous shipwreck, it's actually the Franklin Expedition. <laughs> um, what you know, because more time and energy and resources and money is has been spent at trying to find the Franklin Expedition. Why do you think this shipwreck has 
captivated people for 150 years. You know, I, as a good journalist, I asked that question when I first got on the icebreaker way back in 2014, and a, a scientist said to me, people care because you journalists keep telling them to care. So um, that there's, there's that point of view. I think what's so captivating about it, that there are, there are several elements to this, but the fundamental fact of it is 129 brave men who were out there trying to expand the horizons of human knowledge, lost their lives, and and no one knows why. They didn't nobody survived to tell us what happened to them. And I think that's that's got all the elements of of human exploration and the frontier and what drives us and the sacrifice to do all of that, surrounded by a mystery. And that's just captivating. The, you know, the other part of this is is it's sort of like Shakespeare. Because there's that mystery, each generation can bring to it what that generation wants. So to some generations, a Sir John Franklin is an idiot. He messed up. He was a fool. To other generations, he's still a great hero who who just came up against odds that couldn't be overcome and his men bravely struggled to find their way out. So you can you can read what you want into it and I think that keeps the story alive. Yeah, it is, it, it is a compelling story. It's a very human story and you know there's been endless, you know, novels written about, you know, humanity versus nature and you know the nature of hubris and so forth. So I, I think this fits right into that. Um, on, on that note, kind of a, a side pop culture question, um, I, I'm actually watching the, uh, the AMC television show, The Terror. Um, I'm not sure if, you, if you're familiar with that, um, but this story has been you know, fictionalized. I, I saw just by chance the, the last episode, and I thought it was fabulous. The, you know, the, the little that I saw of it, I thought it was great. You know, very interesting. I think it takes more of a, a supernatural take on the expedition which you know their environment kind of lends itself to but uh, it's interesting to see how this you know 150 year old mystery um, you know has been picked up by popular culture yeah and the 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 you know just from a writing point of view the the hard part about doing a narrative nonfiction is I've got to stick to known facts mm-hmm. so you know the the, some people think there are too many facts in my book, but I was meticulous in trying to make sure that that anything I suggested was backed up by knowable, reportable fact. So the that's in 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 the end a disadvantage because there is no written record of what happened to these 129 men. The great thing in the fictionalized accounts is is people with great imaginations can fill in those vast holes, and then you you get a a really riveting tale. I think my tale is riveting in a different way, but you get a riveting ghost story or other things that are simply imagined, uh, and that that's you know you can and people do this. Uh, you can read the Franklin story over and over again, both in nonfiction and fiction, and really never get tired of it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. There's kind of a, a timeless quality to it. Um, well, um, we hit the highlights here, uh, talking about your book. There's still a lot more in there. You, you uh, tell a great story about the determination of Lady Franklin to find her husband. Um, the very tragic history of uh, Inuit children like Louis uh, in the 20th century, um, the uh, advancements in underwater marine archaeology that enabled Erebus and Terror to be found. So if someone wanted to learn more about your book, be able to find it or learn more about you, uh, where can they go? The, um, you, can, you can get a lot about my past. Uh, you know, I was a photojournalist, so there's lots of pictures and such. On my website, uh, and that the the 
the the website name is a bit long. Uh, it's it's called ArcticStarCreativity.com, but if that's hard to to remember, just cool just, just Google Arctic Star and my name, uh, and you'll find my website. And you know I've I've got a Wikipedia page, so if you Google Paul Watson journalist, uh, you gotta you gotta put journalist in there because if you just Google Paul Watson, you'll get the guy uh, who's the who's wanted. Uh, in various countries because he started the Greenpeace organization uh, and is considered an eco-terrorist by some governments. I, I'm not that guy. That's not you. That, that's not me. Um, so, so, so Wikipedia, my, my webpage, uh, and uh, you know, th th those are the two places to start. All right. Well, uh, Paul Watson, thank you very much for your time, and this has been a, a wonderful discussion. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. I, I really enjoyed it. That wraps up another episode of the Can't Make This Up History podcast. Thank you again to my guest, Paul Watson, for taking the time to talk with me, and thank you for listening. If you are interested in Paul's book, Ice Ghosts, The Epic Hunt for the Lost Franklin Expedition, you can find a link to it on the show's description. I've also provided a list of bonus content, including Paul's other work, some of the articles and websites he mentioned during our interview, and information about the new TV show we talked about at the end of the episode, AMC's The Terror, which is all available at the podcast website at www.can'tmakethisuppodcast.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode on the Lost Franklin Expedition. If you want to listen to other CMTU episodes, they're available on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. Lastly, I'd like to send out a few thank yous. Thank you to Frank with the Empires of History podcast for adding me to his history podcast directory, as well as to the Geekly podcast and Pop Culture Mythology podcast for talking about the show a lot on Twitter the last couple of weeks and helping get the word out. I'll see you all here again on Tuesday, February 5th for the next episode of the Can't Make This Up History podcast. Make it a great week, everybody.